Today's scripture readings is Psalm 149. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembling of the godly. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Let the godly exalt in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their throats and two-edged swords in their hands. To execute vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the judgment written. This is an honor for all his godly ones. Praise the Lord. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy word. Thank you, Nancy. Good morning, Tara. Good morning, good morning. Hello. Good morning. So Psalm 149 is one of the last five psalms in the book of Psalms. It's one of the concluding psalms. So Psalms 146 to 150 are the conclusion of the prayer book of the Bible. And what we see in the conclusion of the prayer book of the Bible, Psalm 146, 147, 148, 149, and 150, they all begin and end with praise the Lord. We see it in Psalm 149 today. They all begin and end with praise the Lord. And this is telling us, this conclusion of the Psalter is telling us something very important. A life of prayer will end in praise. A praying life will end in praise. None of our prayers are wasted. None of them are in vain. A life of prayer will end in praise. So, we want to be a praying church. We've said it multiple times, and we're going to keep saying it. We want to be a church that's both grounded in the Word of God and led by the Spirit. We want to be grounded in the Word of God and led by the Spirit of God. We want to be grounded in the Word. Speaking of the Word, if you don't have a Bible with you and you'd like one, there's going to be a few times where I'm going to pause and go through a couple verses and passages here and go through them a bit slowly. So if you'd like hard copy of the word of God, you can lift your hand up and one will be brought to you. Uh, but we want to be grounded in God's word. I think we do a pretty good job. Terra Nova Church does a good job of being grounded in the word. In all of our ministries, on Sunday mornings, we're going through the word of God. We're making his word center and we see Christ revealed in his word and we try to keep it front and foremost in all that we do. We can always grow, but we're, I think we're doing a, a phenomenal job. We also want to be led by the Spirit. We want to be in His Word, but also led by the Spirit of God. And I think one of the best ways that we can do that is when we are a praying church. Pray, a praying church is a living church, where God is active, where we see Him involved in our stories, and we see Him moving and answering our prayers. We want to be a praying church. A praying church is a joyful church a life-giving church. But I also want to mention a praying church is a church that embraces death as well because we don't always want to pray. 
the very act of praying is saying, God, I can't do all of this by myself. We, the very act of praying is, is saying, God, we need you. And we believe in your power to change the reality of the circumstances in front of us. We're embracing our, our inadequacies. We're dying to ourselves when we pray. But that's where life is found. That's where we connect with the Lord, grounded in his word and also led by his spirit, praying. So we're looking at a bunch of these psalms, which are prayers directed to the Lord. And that's what we see in Psalm 149. I have a a main idea for you in Psalm 149. It's really simple. You might smirk at it, but here it is. Praise our God, who makes us, who has made us, singers and slayers. Do you see both of that in the verses today? Praise our God, who has made us singers and slayers and slayers. And what we're going to find is that actually we can do both of those at once, singing while slaying. So we'll we'll, we'll get to that. What do we mean by the slaying part? I'm guessing that's where you have some questions, right? Okay. So first, praise our God who has made us singers. We see that in verses 1 through 6 of Psalm 149. He's made us singers, worshipers, right? We'll dig into those verses. And then secondly, praise our God who has made us slayers, verses 6 through 9. What kind of slaying are we called to do? What kind of battle are we in? So first, praise our God who has made us singers, verses 1 through 5. In verses 1 through 5, we see how we are to praise the Lord. In verses 1 through 3, and in verses 4 to 5, give us a few reasons of why we should be engaging in praising the Lord. How we praise the Lord, and then why we praise the Lord. So how we praise the Lord is in verses 1 through 3. Let me remind you again of what that says. The Word of God says, Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise in the assembly of the godly. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. Praise the Lord. Let me, first thing I want to mention, notice how it doesn't say, sing well to the Lord. Or sing only if you have a professional, well-tuned voice. I like to quote Psalm 100 that says, make a joyful noise to the Lord. That joyful noise doesn't have to be a well-refined noise. He just says, sing to him, praise him. You don't have to sound amazing to do so. Now look, I'm grateful for the multiple bands that we have in Terra Nova Church that practice hard and put in the time and are gifted by God and sound great. I think we're glad to have these individuals who use their gifts and lead us in worshiping God. We're grateful for them. But listen, if we had zero talented singers here, we would still do it. We would still do it because we're called to praise the Lord through Singing, through singing to him in the assembly of the godly. That's together. God calls us to sing to him, to praise him together. We do that every single week, corporately, together, church gathered. But notice in verse 4, it also mentions those who worship him on their beds, individually. And I'd like to propose to you that those, these two go hand in hand, as in, if we're not worshiping God on our own time, 
if we're not singing out to him, finding ourselves spontaneously worshiping God through the week on our own, you can't sleep at night, there's still times where you can, you can praise the Lord. If we're not doing the individual praising of God, we're going to be a pretty unexciting, unworshipful church when we get together, right? I was thinking on the way here, have you been, I've been to a few concerts, right? And I can have an idea of the people that are there. This is an imperfect analogy like most analogies, but let me just, you can have an idea most people at a concert of, oh, these are the people that have been listening to this band for a long, for a long time. Or they, they've been humming this, they know the words, they, they were humming it this week, then they've got the clothes, like these people know why they're here and they're excited to start to start singing. Then there's the people that were kind of dragged along by their daughter or their son or like a friend who's like really into it, but you're just going for them and you're there and you can, you can sing along and you can try, like, but man, there's a difference. There's a difference. When we come together as people who have been praising God all week, there's a difference, okay? What is the kind of assembly worshiping God that this psalmist is describing? If you keep looking in verses one through three and how they're praising, it says... They sing a new song. So here's how I'm going to apply this. Our worship teams, you got to come up with new songs every single week that we get together. I want, I want six, seven brand new lyrics every single... No, I don't, think, I don't think that's what he's saying. We do come up with new songs. I think that's great. But the point, I believe the psalmist is saying, is there should be a freshness, a liveliness, an enthusiasm. It's not you're just going through the motions wrote singing, here are the words of the song that I've been singing since I was, you know, seven years old, and I still don't really know what it means or care what it means, but I'm just going to say the words so I can go on to the next. No, this enthusiastic, sing a new song. What has it been God been, what has it been doing in your life lately? Like, sing that out to him. Sing, sing who he is in new and fresh ways. A new song. Be glad in our maker. He's the reason that we're glad. He's the reason that we're here. He's the reason... E- that we always have, can have a song in our heart, a new one to sing out, to belt out before the Lord. He's the reason that we can do it in these different ways of singing and with instruments and with dancing. (laughs) With singing and with instruments and with dancing. So throughout the ages and throughout cultures today, you might notice how Forms of worship, like how people express their praise to God, changes or looks differently in some places than others. So what should our response to that? I have a kind of a funny thing I heard not too long ago. There's a, there's a pastor I respect quite a bit that passed away, I think, in the 80s. And there were a few things I didn't agree with him about, one of which was he said, guitars are backstreet backslidden harps like we never should have moved on from from you know from harps and all this idea of of it should be this we should use these instruments or these lack of instruments or we should sound this way or we shouldn't have this or that and can we just look who cares how you do it how that changes i know we have our preferences but can we be a people that just want to praise the lord with instruments singing dancing Look, some of you here, you listen to that, you hear the word dancing, and you're like, no. Nope. And if we start going in that direction, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go somewhere else. Look, some of you, you hear that, and you're like, yes, I want to be. Can we be a church where, look, I don't care how you express 
how much, how often do we just make it about ourselves and what people think of us and what are people thinking of me when I'm, when I'm hands are up or down or too loud or too silent? Look, make it about you and God. Like how many times have you heard Pastor Rob say something like whatever posture you need to take that you want before the Lord to, to express your worship and your praise and, or your confession to him, just do it. Let's just not make it about ourselves and let's not try to be distracting to those around us to get their attention off of God, but let's be a people. What I'm seeing here is the psalmist describing a people that are glad to be together and worshiping God. It's a lively bunch as they're singing and praising the Lord together. Now, let me pause a second. Maybe you're here and you're thinking, look, I don't really, I'm not really a praising kind of person. I don't really work, like, I don't, Maybe you're here and you're like, I don't worship God and I don't worship, I don't worship anything. I just want to pause for a second and politely, respectfully disagree with you. I have one of my favorite quotes about the fact that we're all worshipers and we all do it all the time. It just looks differently, right? So there was, a, there was an atheist named David Foster Wallace. He was a well-known American author. He died in the early 2000s-ish. And as an atheist he still very much acknowledged the reality that we're all worshipers. Here's my favorite quote about the fact that everybody worships. He says, here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap into the real meaning of life, then you'll never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. On one level, we know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The trick, though, is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. What he's saying is, look, we're all worshipers. We're all worshiping something. The question is, what are we worshiping? And so my proposition to us is, let's worship the one who made us worshipers in the first place and the only one that can, that can fill that longing of our hearts to worship and to praise, and that's the Lord. So, some idea of how we praise this corporate assembly in verses 1 through 3. Then he gives us a few reminders of why we praise our God in verses 4 to 5. Here's what it says. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Let the godly exult in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. We worship a God who takes pleasure in us. He delights in us. He doesn't, I love hearing this. (laughs) He doesn't just love you, he likes you. Like he wants to hear from you. He wants to be with his people. Like he really does, like all the time. We get sick of each other at times, right? You get tired of listening But God always wants to be with us. He always wants to be with his people at all times. Who are his people? He tells us. He adorns the humble 
with salvation. He saves the humble. Think about it. If you are an actual Christian, you had to have embraced, had to have embraced humility in a big way already. Because who are the saved? Who, Who are those he has saved? It's those who have confessed that we are sinners and we need a savior. But think about this for a second. How humble is that? We have to acknowledge and embrace the fact that we are so messed up that the only remedy was for God to die. Can you just take that in a second? Like, you are so messed up that the only solution, I am so messed up as a human being that the only way God could fix that was for God the Son to die absorbing the wrath of God that should fall on me. That's, that's a humble pill that is incredible to take in. He adorns the humble with salvation. The humble. Those, we, we, we have to get over thinking we know it all and that we're better than everyone and that somehow we deserve God to do anything for us. Nope. He adorns the humble with salvation. Can we talk a little bit more about, about humility? How, how easily do you accept uh, embracing humility? I'll talk about me for a second because I'm not going like, to pick and choose someone and just talk about you about it. So I'll talk about me. And maybe you relate. I have an easier time being humble about activities and things that I don't think I'm very good at. Following that? I have an easier time celebrating, I'll give an example, artistic beauty because I'm the worst artist you will ever meet. You ever played that game where you draw a picture and you pass it to someone and eventually you get to the end and there's a story based off it? If you, don't play with me because if you do, it, I mess up every single one of those things. I'm just terrible at it. So bad. But it's easy for me to celebrate, man, this person is such a gifted artist. They draw so well. They make all these things. It's just easy for me to do that. But when you pick something that I, that I think I'm decent at, it's a bit harder. Why is that? Can you relate to that? Why is that? It's because we put too much of our own worth or value into that thing or activity that we think we're good at. That's why. Because if I'm not good at that, who am I? Because if I can't do that, what do I bring to the table? Right? I have struggled with that. I do struggle with that. Okay? It's changed some of the ways that looks like in my life, but can I be just really transparent here? One of the ways that that plays out in my life today is preaching. And that's, that bothers me. I'm open request for prayer here because what's the problem? The problem is that I think to myself, if I'm not good at that, what am I offering to God and to the church? Who am I? What will people think? If I come less prepared or unprepared or I say the wrong things or I don't explain that one delicate point so nicely, see I didn't plan the word to say for that because I'm trying to make it more about what God is doing and just me trying to have the exact right words or else somehow Sunday fails. It doesn't. It's so much more than that. Okay? 
but it's because we forget that before anything that we do or any title that or relationship that you have, you are you. God has called you by name. He doesn't just love you, he likes you so much that he wants you to be a son, daughter, bride of Christ. That's who you are, that's who I am, first and foremost, period. Why do we have to hear that again and 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 again? We do, because we forget, because we don't believe the way God sees us. And so we need, the, we need to be in the word of God, grounded in the word, led by the spirit, a praying church, praying for one another, reminding each other of these truths, embracing humility. I have a couple examples of how we can grow in humility. The first one is pretty silly, just let me say it. <laughs> the, next, the next one is, is better. And then the third one, really listen to that one. So how do we grow in humility? Idea number one, is it up there? That's why. Yeah, play golf, <laughs> okay? But get the, get the point that I'm trying to make here. I'm bad at golf. So when I play golf, humility happens. No matter how hard I try, it's slice. It just drives me mad, okay? But it humbles me, and I'm able to say to the people I play with, you're so good at golf. Like, how did you do it? But to the people that are really good at golf, play something else. That's the point I'm trying to make. Do something that you're not super gifted at so that you're able to celebrate other people that are and just embrace some humility. All right, semi-silly example, but I'm saying it. It's also from a book called Humility um, <laughs> that, that I'm working through. So secondly, uh, before you go to sleep at night, I have two thoughts every night, also from this book called Humility, and I'm blanking on the author at the moment. C.J. Mahaney, I believe, wrote this book. Okay, Humility. Two thoughts about humility in regards to going to sleep at night. The first thought is before you go to sleep, think about what you're doing because we spend a third of our lives unconscious. This is a great way of embracing humility. A third of our lives, you are so utterly useless <laughs> to the rest of the world any, in any kind of productive way. You can't defend yourself. You're unconscious, so dependent on God. Just remember that every night and thank God for the gift of sleep. Thank you, God, that tonight I have this place to sleep. I'm going to be able to recharge. You know, thank God for the gift of sleep and remember how dependent we are, okay? Second thought about going to bed at night, here's the second thought and growing in humility. As you get on your bed and you lay all the way down and you put your head down and you realize that your full weight is on that bed, think to yourself, thank you, Jesus, that the full weight of all of my life, all of my hope in this life and the life to come is in you, Jesus, and what you've done and in who you are. The full, the very full weight. He is our living hope. Drop everything else. Put your full weight and trust in him. And when you go to bed at night, you can remember, as I'm putting my whole weight on this bed, God, my whole soul, all the weight of my life is in your hands. I commit my spirit to you. Lord, two thoughts that could help maybe grow in humility. Make sense? Okay. So, third one. Jesus. This is how we grow in humility. Philippians 2, verses 3 through 8, I believe it is. Where did I put this? Philippians 2, verses 3 through 8. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. 
Let each of you not only look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being found Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Just think about the humility of Jesus. Though God didn't hold on to that, but emptied himself and took on all the frailties and the weaknesses of a human being, and he became the God-man. Think about the humility of Jesus and think, how can we embrace and reflect that kind of humility? When you think you're better than somebody else in something, can you just remember Jesus for a second? I'm preaching to myself, too. When you think you're better, just remember Jesus. Someone said to me, my best friend visited uh, not terribly long ago that I grew up with, and he was talking about, he leads worship occasionally in his church in Pennsylvania, and he's like, have you thought about how... Jesus, how he went to synagogue, and how this is the one who left the perfect worship of heaven with the angelic host, with like the the perfect worship of God. He left that. He came here, and he walked into synagogues and worshiped with believers in God, like with them. Can you imagine all the ways he would have thought that could be better, and that could be better, and that... You missed that point, and you should have sung. He left perfect heaven. And what did he do? He sat beside them. He didn't try to change, just perfect. He was there worshiping God with them. The humility of Jesus is astounding. I need to go faster. Okay, so praise our God who has made us singers. Now we get to the the one with all the question marks, like what is this, what are these next verses about? Praise our God who has made us slayers. Verses 6 through 9. Let the high praises of God be in their throats. Yes, of course. Right. And two-edged swords in their hands. Wait a second. To execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples. To bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron. To execute on them the judgment written. This is honor for all his godly ones. Praise the Lord. Wait a second, how, how is he going to apply this one? Do I have a bunch of armor and weapons in the back closet there, and I'm going to hand them out, I'm going to tell you who we're going to go execute and do vengeance and bind some kings and wrap around some fetters, like irons on, on some nobles somewhere? Like, who are we going to? Okay, so how does this apply to us? What does this mean? Because, listen, we are in a battle. Does anyone not know that? We are 100% in a battle every single day of our lives. And if we're missing that, we're missing a key element of what it means to follow Jesus Christ, okay? But how easily this psalm and these verses can be misunderstood and misapplied today, and they have. They were quoted in the Crusades I was reading about. People's own agenda to do violence and in the name of God when it's not what God wanted them to do. So how does this apply to us? Let me be, let me be brief for a second here. Because this is, this, is being sung, this is a psalm in which the Israelites sung together and praised God and is affirming, what does it say in verse 9? 
to execute on them the judgment written. So what was written for the Israelites to execute judgment on peoples and nations and kings? Like, what is happening there? It's possible that as this psalm was written, the nation of Israel was being attacked by another nation. And they're going out and they're praising God and they're defending their land. That's possible. But what I found and what seems to be the most reasonable explanation is this is talking about Israel, which let me just hone in on this a second, who was the chosen nation by God for a period of time during the Mosaic Covenant to know God, represent God, and, and it was a theocracy in which king, like God as king is ruling directly over this one nation and telling them where to go and what to do. There was a judgment written. What would judgment was that? for the Israelites to take the land of Canaan, which was filled with nations and kings and peoples, whom God had decided their time of judgment had come. And Israel is commanded, specifically you can read in the book of Joshua, to drive out all of those nations from the land of Canaan, and if they don't leave, you kill them. If they don't leave, you murder them. So... Just, that can bother us, right? Yes? I don't want to just skip over that. That happened. But let me talk to you a little more. Why did God do that? Can I just for one second say, God is God. He can do whatever he wants. Let me just say that. But when you read through it, and you go back to Genesis 15, God tells Abraham What's going to happen? He gives them this, this foreshadowing of the Exodus and his people, and they're going to get the land of Israel. And, and after he tells them that, 400 years go by before the Israelites take that land and drive them out. And the reason that they're called to do that, not because Israel is deciding they're going to wipe out and drive out these nations, but God had said their, their wrath cup, if you will, was overflowing, and it was time for God to judge them using Israel as his arm of justice. So they had reached the point of their sins to this degree that God was going to judge them, which, by the way, when the Israelites, his people, got to a certain point of sins overflowing, he judged them too. This, this wasn't this favoritism game. When they got to a certain point, there's judgment. For the Israelites, it was exile, pestilence, death. For the nations in Canaan, it was being driven out and killed if they tried to stay. So what was the judgment? Why did he do that? I want to give you some reasons why. Leviticus chapter 18, Leviticus chapter 18 tells us some of the sins of the people that were in the land that the Israelites were to drive out. It says they had, they had been performing incest, adultery, child sacrifice, homosexual practice, and bestiality. They had been doing those sins for a period of time to the point where it was time for God to judge them. And we look at those, we look at that list, incest, adultery, child sacrifice, homosexual practice, bestiality. And our culture looks at some of those in disgust and will say how terrible those things are, incest, bestiality. But then we look at adultery, child sacrifice, which our country and others do in the form of abortion today and homosexual practice. And we say, God shouldn't judge that. 
In fact, we should be proud of that. And we should tell others that, that they should be proud of acting in those ways, too. Now, listen. We don't say that lightly. We don't say that flippantly. We should be a people that can be open and honest about what we're going through and about what we're experiencing and can accept each other just as we are while at the same time knowing God loves us so much that he loves us just the way we are, but he loves us so much that he doesn't keep us just the way we are. He's not holding back at all. He's worthy of our whole lives. And we should be a people that can be honest about what we're going through, about what we're experiencing, and help each other walk along this perfect God who knows what's best for us and our lives and walk towards him together. And so we should be a people that can talk to each other about this thing. And I'm just volunteering myself. Any of these things bothering you to hear it? Come talk. Let's have coffee. Let's, let's, let's talk through it. Follow, journey along as we follow Christ. The Israelites were singers and slayers called by God to drive out the nations in Canaan, the promised land that was given to them. And the church today, we're also singing and we're also slaying, but it doesn't look the way that it did then. There's no nation that God is calling the church to go in and drive out anymore or ever again. So what is the battle that we are involved in every single day because we are involved in a battle? What's the battle? Well, we read all about it, right? The word of God. This is our authority. This is where we go to see the truth. And so what's the battle that we're in? 2 Corinthians 10 says, the weapons of our warfare, a lot of you know this one, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. Like, they're not physical. There's no literal sword for you to pick up and go to battle in the name of God. They're not physical. So what are they? So here's where I'm going to stop a second, read through a passage that's the most has the most content about this battle and how, what armor we're supposed to put on and what our weapon is, it's in Ephesians chapter 6. So all I want to do is read through that slowly and talk a little bit about it as we go through it. Ephesians 6 verses 10 through 18 is the battle and how we, what's the armor and what does it look like. So Ephesians 6, 10 through 18 says, finally, be strong in the Lord, in the Lord, and in the strength of his might. His, not ours, his. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, armor of God, God's armor, that you, plural, that's all of us, that's the, church, the army of saints, that you, plural, may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. In Ephesians 6, we see again and again this idea of how do we stand? How do we withstand? And how do we do that together? The answer is putting on the whole armor of God. Verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. I want to say that again. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. It's not against people, this battle. We do not wrestle, wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness 
and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is the battle he's describing. Verse 13, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that we may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. So how do we stand? How do we withstand together what we're really fighting against? The spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. What's the armor? What's the weapon? We see in verses 14 through 18. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Truth. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Truth. Righteousness. This is the armor. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. We have righteousness, we have truth, we have the gospel of peace. This is the armor. Verse 16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit. Here's the only weapon, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So we have righteousness, truth, the gospel of peace, Faith, salvation for for our armor, and then our one weapon is the word of God. The word of God. And we put all of that together, verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. It's the truth about Jesus. Embracing that, believing that, knowing that, the righteousness as in We are right with God because of Jesus. How do we live a life that's right and pleasing to God? We see it through Jesus. The gospel of peace. The good news of what God has done in Jesus Christ. Faith. Faith in what? Ourselves? Our ability? Our fighting ability? No. Faith in Jesus. And taking up the word of God. Grounded in his word. His word is our authority, and we're led by the Spirit of God as we pray at all times, he says. Constantly connected to where the power is, to God. I think it's World War II, KP can correct me afterwards, um, where, where, did they have radios in World War I, KP? Okay, primitive, and World War II, they definitely had, they definitely had radios. And when they needed... When they needed help and when they needed power to face the enemies, they, they, they knew where to go. They would call in through the radio to, to the base, to where the power is. This is how, prayer is how we connect to where the power is. This is why we don't need to be afraid of this battle that we're in. Because Jesus, the commander, is with us and for us and has already won the war and gives us the power to overcome, to stand as we put on this armor and as we're in the word of God. Okay. So, I'm going to end with a question you might have. But I don't see the battle. That's kind of the point, right? It's spiritual. But let me just, let me get into this for a second. But I don't see this, this raging battle that you're talking about. So first of all, at times, it is seen. When Jesus walked around, you follow his ministry through the Gospels, you have these demonic manifestations happening left and right. Demons speaking, 
knowing things they shouldn't know in Mark's gospel. They know who Jesus is, it seems, more than anybody else does. Speaking, knowing things, tormenting people. There's manifestations. And that happens around the world today. And guess what? That happens around our world today. It does. It happens. It happens, I'll say, occasionally. But the battle, the unseen battle, is happening every single day. And it's a war for our minds. Because listen, think about this. Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days, the battle against the devil, what we don't see is Jesus doing like a left juke and throwing a spear, and then the devil coming back with a, with a sword, and he dodges it and does a combo move and an elbow. There's none of that happening. What's going on? It's, it's a battle for truth, for the mind. He keeps, the devil kept saying, if you are the son of God, and then would tempt him. It's a battle for the truth. And Jesus would counter every time with what? Again, not the word of God. This is our weapon. The word of God. He would counter the lies from the enemy with the truth of God's word. And when the enemy used scripture to lie, to twist, he countered with the truth of God's word. Again and again and again. This is the the battle that's happening every day. The enemy trying to get us to believe and walk in a lie. And it plays out in a million, every single day of our lives. So, we take up the whole armor of God and we cling to the word of God, our one weapon. We cling to Jesus, the God of the word. And we fight not, a, not from a place of fear. We don't need to fight from a place of anxiety, but a place of victory. Because Jesus, our commander, our leader, he's already won the war. He's already secured salvation for the humble, for those who have confessed their sins and believe in him. The war is done. And he fights for us today. And so we commune and we cling and we connect to him together as an army of saints, and that's how we stand. That's the battle today that goes on every single day of our lives. And how did Jesus win? This is how we, this is what we celebrate every week. How did Jesus win the battle? Not how you might think he would. He won by dying. He won by giving his life. This is how he conquered the forces of evil. This is how he conquered sin that leads to death. He gave his life. He took off. He didn't have any physical body armor there. He gave his flesh and his blood to secure the victory for his people. And so that's what we celebrate every week. We look back and we say, thank you, Jesus, for your blood shed and your body given for us. The battle continues. I can't wait for it to be over. But in the meantime, we fight together with the armor he's given us as an army of saints. Let me pray for us. Father, this psalm gives us reasons to praise you. To praise you, Lord, with our, with our, with our lives, with our mouths, with all that you've given to us, Lord. To praise you with enthusiasm, with excitement, to be a singing 
praising, worshiping church, Lord. That's what we want to be. That's what we're about to do, Lord. And God, we know that you've called us to, to worship you, to be singers and also slayers. And Lord, as we sing these words of truth, we can slay. We can slay the enemy and the lies that keep coming our way as we sing your word, as we sing what's true, as we sing who we are and what you've done and where we're going and the confidence that we can have in you. So help us do that, Lord. Help us engage. God, I pray for those of us who have either forgotten, who have never really entered into the battle for our minds, the battle for the truth that you've secured for us. Lord, I pray, help us turn to you. Help us turn to you with our whole heart, our whole lives, our whole minds. Help us not to be conformed into the mold of this world, but instead be transformed by you, Jesus. Indwell us, Holy Spirit. Change us from the inside. Make us new. And God, I pray, as I forgot to announce, (laughs) for any of those of us that need prayer, Lord, I pray that they would go to the holy corner over there after the service for whatever reason, any, any reason to pray, Lord, I need it today. May we be a praying church. We pray this in Jesus' name.